This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of But God Can, How to Stop Striving and Live Purposefully and Abundantly, written and narrated by Becky Kaiser and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to the Grace Enough Podcast. I'm your host, Amber Cullum, and this week I am delighted to bring you a conversation with one of my favorite Bible teachers, Christy McClelland. Christy is a professor and a Bible culturalist, meaning she teaches the Word of God through a Middle Eastern lens, which is something that we delve into today. You'll hear Christy share a few easy adjustments we can make in our Bible reading to deepen our understanding. She also shares how her understanding of the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years shifted when she applied a Middle Eastern lens. This conversation lit my soul on fire for the Word of God. If you have a similar experience, I ask you to share this episode with a friend or on social media. Sharing not only helps others discover grace enough, it opens their eyes to excellent Bible resources like Christie's book, Rediscovering Israel, and her Bible study, Jesus and Women. Good morning, Christy McClelland. Thank you for being on the Grace Enough podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Amber. Uh, we were just talking right before, but I'm starting my day with you. Ah. So, and I'm a morning person. So, I am too. My absolute best. <laughs> Yay. I am as well. I love that. Well, before we get into questions and all the things, sure. um, I just want to say thank you for what you do and for mm -hmm. pouring your heart and soul into this work the way that you have. Uh, I know that I speak on behalf of many, but myself and my mother in law, Sandy, and my friend Allison. We are just so grateful for your work. So thank you. <laughs> Man, thank you. It's not lost on me. It's, it's yeah. been such a joy to be able to serve as that bridge between yeah. the Western church and the worlds and lands of the Bible. Mm. And I, I feel like I'm just planted in the yeah. way that the Lord has wanted to plant me. And Such a know, gift. Yeah. So thank you. Well, so tell me this before we do dive into Rediscovering Israel, which is the book that we're going to talk about. I love to begin with, how did you, like, what did your early journey with Jesus look like? Oh, that's a great question. So I was blessed to be birthed into a family of faith, both my father and my mother, followers of Jesus. And we attended a small church in rural Mississippi where I grew up. And so I think, you know, I often joke, I came out of the womb singing all 99 verses of Just As I Am, um, that old <laughs> yes. song, so I already knew them. <laughs> But I mean, a lot of it, honestly, early on just came through osmosis of being a part of my family. You know, we were in church every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Yeah. It was a very much a, a core central part of our lives. But I was nine years old when I accepted Jesus and became a follower for myself. And I would say just for nine years, I'd been hearing the gospel, seeing it lived out among a mm. faith community in my local church in my city. But at nine, that was when I heard the gospel and really heard it for me. Mm -hmm. Very much this individual invitation by the living God um, for mm -hmm. me to mm. become an adopted daughter into the family of God. 
saved through faith in Jesus. So really nine started my personal relationship with the Lord, Mm -hmm. but I've never known a context without faith. Yeah. Oh, that is such a gift. You know, I hear some people say, oh, my testimony is so boring. And I'm like, no, no, No. you have a rich history of faith that a lot of people long for. That's right. Every testimony is beautiful. We are creatures of story. I have a really good friend who's a, a neuroscientist. And she told me that literally human beings, our brains light up when we start hearing a story. God, how cool, isn't it? Storytellers and story hearers. And you even see that, I think, in the Bible. The Bible is a story, you know, that the living God's giving us. And so there's no boring testimonies out there. I agree. That is when the word really came alive for me is when I began to see it as not just bits and pieces, but as one story from start to to revelation, but then on, even in our own lives, you know, that just changes everything. Um, And so for you in rediscovering Israel, that is something that you start your book out with. And I love this quote. It's from Gary. How do I say his last name? Is it Burge? Oh, Dr. Burge. Dr. Burge. This is what he says. We have forgotten that we read the Bible as foreigners, as visitors who have traveled not only to a new geography, but to a new century. We are literary tourists who are deeply in need of a guide. Talk to us about the value of engaging scripture with Middle Eastern eyes. Great question. So, you know, when I'm talking with my students at the college, I always talk about all language only has meaning within context. Mm. Um, And so the same goes for the Bible. And so here we are, a people living in the West, speaking English primarily. We're very Greco-Roman as a culture. We follow more Athens and Rome than we do Jerusalem. Um, And so we're very much this individualistic, consumeristic, Western Greco-Roman culture reading an ancient Hebraic you know, Jewish, Middle Eastern story. And Mm. so it does speak to all people in all places at all times. And the spirit of God is breathing and moving and and, and interpreting and showing. But it really helps us to understand the language of the Bible when it's placed in its world. You know, I had the chance to spend six weeks in India years and years ago, I was working for a parachurch missions organization and I'm walking down a main street in a very large city in India. And I was eating a banana and out of nowhere, a monkey came up behind me and grabbed my banana right out of my hand and kept going. And I use that as an example because that has never happened to me in any city here in the United States. But India is a different culture where Mm -hmm. animals mean something different. And Mm -hmm. so I'm trying to interpret what happened to me there, but I can't understand it through my Western American lenses. But I start to understand it when you understand the culture of India there. Mm -hmm. And so you can imagine we're constantly reading the Bible and stories and things are happening, cultural norms and values Um, idioms and different things that are foreign to us. 
yes, in our own day and time. And so it's been fun. It's kind of like a like a treasure hunt. You know, I'm always talking about getting to know the Bible in its native habitat. Yeah, well, and I love too, though, that you point out for those of us who have read the Bible for years, even decades, that this is not negating what we've already learned. Instead, it's just another layer to add to what you've already learned. And so talk to us about that a little bit, because I know you're not communicating to anyone that reading the Bible only matters if you do it with a, you know, a middle Eastern lens. That's not the point. It's just this adds depth to it. So talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, I like to see it as an enhancement. I mean, Mm -hmm. as followers of Jesus, when we say that we're committed to the word of God, I I think that what we mean is we're committed to growing in our understanding of the word of God. And so we're constantly seeking enhancements, better understanding. You know, I really liken it to like going to your eye doctor when he sits you in that chair and puts the things in front of you. And he's like, how clearly can you see this? And he's clicking the dials. Um, Uh I really feel like starting to understand the Bible with Middle Eastern eyes. That's Mm -hmm. what's happening. It's not that we don't see it, but we start to see it more clearly when we understand it a little bit better. So it's an enhancement. It helps us to grow in our appreciation of who Jesus is as a Jewish male rabbi of Israel and Messiah of the world. And, you know, all that he's doing in the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when you start Mm -hmm. to understand the first century Jewish world that he was living in, all of a sudden his words, his actions, where he's doing things, it just becomes very clear. Like your, like your eyes are getting clicked and you're getting an enhanced view of who Jesus is and what he's like, what he was doing 2000 years ago. And the hopefulness for us is that whatever he was doing for them, he's still doing for us now. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. So give us then someone, let's say, who has never really thought about some of that, but maybe is someone who at least gets in the word several times a week. Are there two to three little adjustments um, to where someone's not so overwhelmed and intimidated by beginning to read things a little bit differently. Do you have any advice for us in that regard? Yeah, I mean, a few things that just always come to my mind is I believe the Bible is a story. Mm-hmm. I believe it's the best and truest story ever told. And here in the West, sometimes we break it down. We call it systematic theology, my three years in seminary. Yeah. Um, and again, just I, I loved my seminary experience. But for the Jewish people, when they're experiencing the Bible, it is a story. 
that they are in as the New Testament church, we are in it. Mm -hmm. So I always tell people no Christian should ever be intimidated by the Bible. We don't pick up a novel and feel intimidated by it. Mm. We don't pick up a storybook and feel intimidated by it because it's less about getting it right. And it's more about Mm. experiencing the father who has given us the best and truest story ever told. So that's the first thing I would say is to embrace the Bible as a gift of the greatest story ever told given to you by your heavenly father. And he's with you when you are reading it and when you're experiencing it. Um, The second thing I would say is as we're reading the Bible, you know, I grew up very much being taught that one of the first questions to ask is what does this teach me about Mm. me? Mm-hmm. And one of the things I really learned while studying in Israel is they always start with, I think, what is an infinitely better question? And that is, what is this teaching me about who God is? Yes. And what like. And I'm always telling my students, as you get to know the living God, you will get to know yourself because he created you. You are Amen. of him and from him. And so I think sometimes when we start, when we jump straight to application, what does this teach me about me? You know, I often joke, if you stare at yourself for too long, you'll get depressed. I, I don't think we were given the Bible to stare at ourselves. I think we were given the Bible to stare at God. Amen. And as oh. we learn who he is and what he's like, that buoyancy, that flourishing, that wholeness, that delight Um, as sons and daughters of God, it's raised in us because he's utterly faithful. Mm -hmm. He's always on the move. Mm -hmm. He's inviting us to be on the move with him. So the Bible isn't a story that we read from afar. It's a story that we read and find ourselves in it. We are located in the story. Um, We are part of that New Testament church that is still here until the second coming of Jesus. And so those are just some things. I think seeing the Bible as story, the best and truest story ever told. Every mm-hmm. time a believer opens their Bible, God the Father is with them. The Spirit of God is with them. And then really just changing out that question. If we start with what does this teach me about who God is and what mm-hmm. is life, what it's going to mean to follow him, we'll start to find out what it's trying to tell us about us. Mm. Gosh, I agree so much. I mean, I remember when that shift started happening for me and then. As I sit sometimes in Sunday schools with young children, it's so hard to just be like, no, this is not like, this is not a moral application. (laughs) I mean, it can be, but that isn't really where we need to be starting from. That's a whole different conversation. But anyways, so tell me this, what is a story like a biblical text that really changed for you? When you, you know, visited Israel and you really saw it through this Middle Eastern experience. And then you said, oh, my gosh, I view that story totally different. Mm -hmm. One that often comes to my mind is the healing of the woman with the issue of blood for many years. And, you know, in our English Bibles, it talks about, you know, there's a crowd of people. She suffered for years And our English Bibles say that she reached out for the helm of his robe. And, you know, the helm, it's the Hebrew word kanaf. It means corner or wing. And so to envision Jesus reaching for the helm, she's reaching for the wing. She's reaching Mm. for the corner, the kanaf on his 
uh, tallit and or whatever that would have looked like for Jesus. And so the question becomes, why is a woman with an issue of blood in a public space so bold to touch a rabbi when she's mm -hmm. ceremonially unclean with people all around? And why is she grabbing the helm of his cloak? And then mm -hmm. when you read in Malachi chapter four, for us as Christians, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. It's not the last book in the Hebrew right. Bible. But it ends in Malachi 4 with this promise of one day the son of righteousness is going to come. And when he comes, he's going to have healing in his wings, in his mm. kanaf, in his kanafim. And so wow. every time I think about that story, I think she's a woman who knows the text. I think she's a woman who knew Malachi 4 as a Hebrew woman. And I think there was something about Jesus that she recognized he was the son of righteousness that the prophets had talked about and that healing was located in his wing, in wow. his corner, in his kanaf. And I think that's what she reached for. And it's so interesting because Jesus feels power go out from him. And mm. he starts looking through the crowd, trying to identify her because I think he understood her reach. I think he understood that she's a woman of the text, understanding oh, Malachi yeah. and is reaching in faith. And so we begin to understand when he tells her in Matthew 9, take heart, daughter, your faith has fooled you. Well, what was that faith? Was it that she was just believing in Jesus? No, she put that faith in action and she mm. reached. And I think it's a very specific reaching. And for me, that just makes the story so much more beautiful to watch this Israelite woman recognizing Jesus as a Galilean rabbi of Israel to not only be a rabbi, but the Messiah and to put mm. flesh to her faith and to yeah. reach for his kanaf, his mm. wing, his corner recognizing that he's the son of righteousness. And so I read stories like that. And it's like, man, if you want to know who Jesus is and what he's like, he's not afraid of you. He's not afraid of the parts of you that you feel the most shame or that make you unclean. You know, one of the striking things about Jesus, and you see it in all four gospels is within first century Judaism, everything's about clean and unclean. Yeah. If you're clean, you're doing everything you can not to touch something unclean because that will make you unclean. Right. And Jesus comes on the scene and it's exactly the reverse. He's clean. And when something unclean touches him, the unclean right. becomes clean. And so you're literally wow. seeing the inauguration of the kingdom of God, the Ratzon La Adonai, the year of the Lord's favor being inaugurated <laughs> among a people. And so awesome. with the issue of blood, she's so used to a system where she can't touch anyone and no one can touch her. And she's experienced that cultural separation for years. So for her to reach for the kanaf of a Jewish rabbi in public with people around, man, she is bold. I can't wait wow. to meet her in heaven. I, I just need a cup of coffee with her to be <laughs> like, please tell me about that day. Tell me about that moment, about that story. And I love that Jesus didn't just let it slide. You know, back to when we read the Bible, what is this telling us about who the living God is? You know, Jesus felt power go out from him. He could have known that she was healed and just let it go, but he stops 
and starts looking around to identify her mm-hmm. in a public setting within a community that knows she's unclean, mm-hmm. that won't touch her, that won't allow her to touch them to mm-hmm. keep ceremonial law. And he really turns it into this public moment of that grand reversal. Who am I? And what am I like in this world? I'm the one that your unclean can come close to me because when it touches me, I will make you clean. Wow. And this was revolutionary in the first century world and for all of human history Wow. that we can bring our full selves to the living God because of the finished work of Jesus on our behalf, because he is still the one today. Mm-hmm. taking people's unclean and making them clean. Oh, so you see in that one story, we're learning who Jesus is and what he's like. And we're also learning a little bit about ourselves. Our faith is supposed to be mixed with action. Uh, There's meant to be reach in us. We're here to host the world. We're here to show the world that the living God has a table and they're all invited to it. I Yes. And I mean, that is something... Goodness. I mean, I could talk to you forever and we're not allowed to do that. So because <laughs> even as I think about, you know, Jesus and women and the the way that you've taught through that, I could dive into so many different things. But I also want to point out how fascinating it is when we even think about geography in the story of God, because as I was reading Rediscovering Israel, I was just so I got so excited about thinking about the fact that God sent Abram near this international highway, basically. And then we see throughout the rest of scripture, how he continues to use that location. Mm -hmm. And honestly, where we are today with everybody and their fear about Israel and Gaza and all the stuff, if you can understand this international highway you will understand a lot of why they're fighting over the land still. So walk us a little bit through that biblical narrative, because I think it's so helpful for people to just, there's so many, but this one in particular to be able to follow and that God strategically sat it up that way from the beginning. Yeah, it's a great question. So God's been coming for the nations from the very beginning. One of the ways when we think of missions as a New Testament church, we very much think of a going out. We think of the Apostle Paul and all of his missionary journeys and things like that. And again, let's hold that. Jesus said, go and make disciples. You'll be Mm -hmm. my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the ends of the earth. So that's Acts 1.8. So let's hold that. But the first way that God really practiced a missiology, if you will, It's exactly the reverse. Mm -hmm. All the way back in the book of Genesis, he calls this man Avram or Abram, later Avraham or Abraham, as Mm -hmm. we call him. And rather than sending him to the nations, he plants him in the land of Canaan, it's called at the time, right along this international trade highway that all the nations are coming through trading their goods. And it's literally like he plants Abram and his descendants Mm -hmm. in that land so that as the nations are coming through, they are hearing about the one true God and and being invited. And so it's, it's very cool to think about that. In Genesis chapter 18, 
the Lord says, am I going to hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And, and it goes on to say that the living God told Abraham, Abraham, I've chosen you and your descendants mm -hmm. to show the nations what is right and just, mm. what is just and right, Mishpat and Zedekah, what is justice and what is righteousness. Mm. And so we see Abraham and his children filling that space and filling that land and making the one true God known to the nation. So I always like to say God planted Abraham there and brought the nations to him yeah. along that international trade highway. And now in the New Testament, we as followers of Jesus seek to be ambassadors and emissaries everywhere all the time right. in our neighborhoods, in our cities in our vocations and unto the ends of the earth. Mm -hmm. And so it's just beautiful to see, like, again, if we read the Bible and if our first question is, what does this teach me about who the living God is? I always say he's coming for everybody. He's coming for everybody. Yes. <laughs> and has been from the very beginning. Yeah. He is God who seeks to host mm. at the wedding supper of the lamb all. Yeah. Even as I continue to read and think about how you have David who comes in and he's in that area. And what he did is different than his son, Solomon, who was really trying to build the wealth and political part of the nation. And I mean, how does even that kind of stuff, and I know this is a much more than a you know two minute description, but how does that matter? And even the playing out of the biblical narrative? Well, the fact that Israel ever took a king is really interesting because before <laughs> David and Solomon, there was Saul. Shaul. That's right. And he's of the tribe of Benjamin. And Shaul, you read about it, I think in 1 Samuel 9, the living God told the Israelites, you don't need, need a human a king. king. I'm your king. You are a theocracy, not a monarchy. Mm -hmm. And the Israelites responded and they said, we want to be like all the other nations. So rather than being distinct among the nations, they're trying to assimilate and be like the nations. And they're like, give us a human king. We want to be like all the other nations. Yeah. And the prophet Samuel outlines for them what a human king is going to do for them. And it's not good. He's going to take your sons and daughters and make them run in front of his chariots. He's going to take, 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 take from you. And so ultimately, Shaul or Saul, God rejects him as king, as we read through the narrative, and he anoints and chooses David to be that second monarch. And we'll never know what Israel's history would have been like um, had Shaul not been chosen by the Israelites. But I'll tell you what's beautiful, and this is why the Bible is one story, and, and we need to read the whole thing, because it's a deep and profound story of wow. restoration. So we have Old Testament Saul, Shaul of the tribe of Benjamin, we have a Saul in the New Testament, Shaul, and guess what tribe he's from? He Benjamin too? From Benjamin. New really? Shaul is a restoration of Old Testament Shaul. Oh my gosh. See, I have read that a million times. And that's why, again, in our Western eyes, we don't really pay attention to who's from what tribe. We were never yeah. taught that. We just know Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. <laughs> we know that. But again, when we start to read the Bible in its world, wow. I absolutely love it that the first king of Israel was so faulty. 
that he mm. the throne was taken from him. And then many, 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 many years later, mm-hmm. here comes another Saul from that same exact tribe who faithfully represents the living God to the nations, something that Saul should have done and didn't. So wow. this is why we need to keep reading. And it's That's why right. we need to learn to ask new questions of the text, because there are so many connections mm-hmm. and beautiful connections there that you would think maybe Saul of the tribe of Benjamin, maybe that name would have lived forward in not such a good way. He wasn't a good right. king. And the Bible is like, oh man, we're all about restoration here. We're not going to hide a Saul of Benjamin. We're just going to raise up a new Saul of the tribe of Benjamin and let him be probably the greatest missionary the world's ever seen. Wow. And I mean, that is, you know, going back to you talking about just how the Bible is a story from beginning to end. And I think about how it really is a book that can be read over and over again from the time you first become a believer until you die and you never exhaust right. the what you can take out of it, what you would call stringing together the pearls, right? Like you just never exhaust that. Yes. Um, yeah. And so it, there's no reason to be that, intimidated by it. No. Well, and part of why we can read it over and over and over again, there's a couple of things. One, we are never the same person Amen. when we're reading the Bible. If a year from now, you're not going to be the same person that you are now. So you might read a same passage or a parasha mm-hmm. that you're reading today, but it's going to read differently to you in a year because you've lived another year of life, more experience. The other reason it's always new is because the Bible is living Living and active. active. I'm always telling my students, we never simply read the Bible. We interact with it. Mm -hmm. It's living and active. And so are we, it's like Mm -hmm. a relationship in the same way in all of our relationships, they change, they mature over time. And so the spirit of God is with us every time. So we're interacting with this living and active word of God. So it is the same words. It will translate differently to our spirits because God as father is always speaking to his children in time and space. Mm. So he's always meeting you and I exactly Mm -hmm. where we are. Every time we open the Bible, I had a student a couple of years ago, He told me, he was like, man, I just finished reading the Bible through for the very first time. What do I do now? And I was like, you read it again. One. Yeah. You know, there is no moving on from it. It's not a book that we will ever master. We will never fully get our hands around it as finite human beings, but it's a perpetual feast Mm -hmm. for us ever and always to be able to come to, to interact with the living God, to interact with the living word of God so that we are constantly being changed and transformed. Paul would say from glory to glory. Glory. Yeah. Well, and that's something too, in the Jewish uh, culture that you write about is that we sit down and we read the Bible and they don't so much view it as reading the word of God, rather they view it as eating the word of God. How is what we do a bit different from that? And why, why does that matter? Mm -hmm. There's a couple of things that come up when I hear that question. One, I think as Westerners, because we are so Mm Greco-Roman, we think of faith as belief. Mm. My faith is what I believe for the Jews. Faith is embodiment. Biblical faith is a verb. 
When yeah. you read Hebrews 11, the great hall of faith, it's not mm-hmm. telling you what they believed. It's telling you what they did. Ah, so yes. biblical faith is a verb. Biblical faith is an embodied faith. So for the Jewish people, they are carrying the word of the Lord in them as they live, move, and have their being. And you see in Psalm 19, the scriptures are likened as being sweeter than honey, than yeah. honey from a honeycomb. Ezekiel talks about an angel handed him a scroll, <laughs> a scroll from the Lord and told him to eat it. It's and so weird. <laughs> when he ate it, it tasted unto him as honey. Jeremiah talks about when the word of the Lord came, I ate them. Mm-hmm. They were my joy and my delight. And so I think there's really an invitation for us there that when we're interacting with the word of God, we're interacting with it to take it in, Mm. to let it become part of us. Where is the word of the Lord? It's seeking to move through this world in us Mm. and through us. So we don't just want to read it. We want to eat it. We don't just want to know it. We want to verb it. Yeah. Oh, well, and so that, that adds a layer. Yes. That adds a really great layer to that. What does it mean that faith without works is dead? Right. It's not an earning of your salvation. It's like what Dallas Willard says. God is not opposed to effort. That's right. He is opposed to earning. earning. That's right. That's exactly right. Oh, that's good stuff. So tell me this, when we think about cultural customs mm-hmm. and idioms, like you said earlier, and, and we witness all of those types of things in the person of Jesus and in his narrative very clearly, and it can be confusing, just like what you described earlier with the woman who bled for 12 years. What are some of those that we particularly see in his life that when we understand them, everything changes for us? You know, when I think about Jesus in all four Gospels, I think the cultural thing that was so important in their world then, it's still a value all throughout the Middle East. It's the value of hospitality and table fellowship. Mm. And Jesus, man, I'm telling you, the table was one of his main vehicles of ministry. As a rabbi of Israel, it's back to that clean and unclean. He's constantly getting in trouble with the Pharisees. Why? Because he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. He Mm. is eating with those who are unclean. And they're saying, Jesus, you're a holy rabbi of Israel. You are clean. You should not be interacting with the unclean. Mm. And Jesus is like, man, you think it's bad. I'm eating with them. I'm going out looking for them. The son of man has come to seek and to save the lost. And in that seeking and in that saving, Jesus is doing so much ministry through hospitality and through table fellowship, who you eat with in that world. It says everything about you. It's a very public affiliation who you eat with, you welcome, you embrace, you accept you are okay to be identified with them. So here we see Jesus again, this Galilean rabbi of Israel and Messiah of the world. And he is eating with the Amharats, the people of the land. And you see it, I believe it's in Matthew chapter 11. The Pharisees are just going off about this. And Jesus is like, look, 
you don't want to get it right. Like John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking. I often joke that John the Baptist was a Baptist. He didn't drink, <laughs> neither eating nor drinking. And you wouldn't accept him. And I have come eating and drinking. Mm. And you say I'm a glutton and a drunkard. Jesus says that words in red. And so my question is, again, if we're reading the Bible and our first question is, what does this teach me about who God is and what he's Mm -hmm. like? How much is Jesus eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners that he earns the reputation of being a glutton and a drunkard? Wow. He's eating and drinking with them all the time. That's right table fellowship. And so for me, and then you look at the fact that like this picture of heaven that we're giving, it's going to be a banquet, the wedding supper of the lamb, Mm -hmm. that there is something about us eating together that we're going to know that in heaven. And I love to think about, I'm not entirely sure that every time we eat together here on earth, that we're not practicing for the wedding supper of the lamb. Yeah. Something that we're going to do forever with Jesus, because again, if he did it for them 2000 years ago, he's doing it with us. So who is Jesus? He's the one who will eat with you, Mm. welcome you, embrace you, accept you before you get your life together. While you are still a tax collector or sinner, Mm -hmm. Jesus pulls up a chair at the table for you because he understands that salvation and transformation happen in proximity to him. Yeah. He's not afraid to bring us close to him and table fellowship makes you very close in the ancient world. And again, today, I mean, think about us today, if we will do it. Oh, well, think about how hard it is to eat with someone you're mad at. I know. (laughs) Think about that. Like it's difficult to eat with people that you are in broken relationship Mm -hmm. with. It is. What I'm saying is like the whole idea of just sharing a big meal together. Mm -hmm. The original intent of that is harmony, flourishing. Well, and do you think this with Jewish culture, even now, are they is, is it the type of meal where you sit down and it really is almost like pass the bowls around or are they like me and they're going into the kitchen and we're all filling up our plate separately? Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, you know, the Jews are both people just like we aren't, you know, so yeah. they all eat in many different ways. But, you know, you think about Jews who observe Shabbat, you know, yes. that Friday yeah. night sundown to mm-hmm. Saturday night sundown just those ancient rituals of the the Shabbat lights being lit, welcoming the Sabbath like a bride. And the Sabbath begins with a Shabbat meal, you know, sitting around a table, eating together, resting together, Mm -hmm. ceasing from our work to remember God's work. Well, what Mm -hmm. is that work that he's making everything new? That's right. That right now we woke up to a living God who, as we slept in the night was actively making all things new. Mm. And so table fellowship is very important. And I think, I think we should actually see it in in more of a spiritual way than kind of a functional way. Yes, we need to eat, (laughs) um, you know, to sustain ourselves, but man, eating together, man, it is deeply spiritual. It is. Well, and so in our family, we started a practice, a Shabbat practice, um, gosh, 20, at the beginning of 2020. So pre-pandemic. 
And I mean, now we've been doing that for three years. But yeah, yeah I mean, it's really transformational, number one. Um, my children, who are 13, 11, and 8, um, like that's an anchor for their week. Of course but, it is. And what, But one of the reasons why, because we light the candles, we do all the things. Um, but one of the reasons why I ask, we always go into the kitchen to get our food. But when we put a charcuterie down on the table, it's amazing the difference in conversation because there's a sense of lingering that happens right. when all things are there. That's right. And I do think that's also the benefit of like bread and butter. Yes. These things that allow you to linger so that you enter into conversation versus feeling like you need to hurry and clear the table. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. That, that linger savor again, is back to that wedding supper of the lamb. Amazing. Seeing that pausing, that being together, letting great conversations find you because you're not in a rush, you know, at the table, there's really something to it. I think the the more hospitable we can be as followers of Jesus. And if you don't cook, order pizza. You know, I'm not talking about just the people out there that love to set their table. That's right. Like a five course. I don't cook and I love hospitality. My, but my table is my fire pit. I'm not going to cook for you because that's that's great life, but I will have (laughs) people over and we will sit around my fire pit and we will tell our stories by firelight. And so my fire pit is my table. Yeah. There's so many ways nowadays that I do feel like you could really cultivate that sense of closeness and conversation and community um, without having to be lavish, that it makes it much easier. Well, um, Christy, let's close with this. You go back and forth to Israel often. And Mm -hmm. so um, tell everybody a little about what you, I mean, because I think that you lead trips for others to join you. So close by sharing some of that information with us. And maybe what, if I joined you, what would be some of my experience? Mm, That's great. So thanks for asking that. So after having the chance to study in Egypt and Israel Mm -hmm. back in 2007, I started taking biblical study trips in 2008, and I've been taking teams to Israel ever since. Um, And I was actually in the Newark airport on October 7th of this year on my way to Tel Aviv when everything broke out and they canceled my flight and I came back home. I was supposed to be in Israel the whole month of October. Wow. And we all know that October 7th, 2023 is going to go down in history for the modern state of Israel and for Jews around the world. Um, so I was literally on my way, but for anyone interested, it's a biblical study trip. It's not a tour. And so we're going to study the Bible and uh, the very places where these stories happened. Again, that embodied sense of faith, taking Mm. on the word, hiding it in us for it to carry around. Um, so if people are interested, they can just subscribe for free at my website, christymcclellan.com. We send out email notifications when trips open up and they're open to anyone, anywhere, couples, families with children, college students, anybody, everybody, everywhere <laughs> is welcome to come to Israel. It, it, it's truly, it changed my life and it's become just a gift for me mm-hmm. to be that bridge so that others can go and experience that embodied experience, the Bible in its world. Well, Christy, I certainly hope I get to join you on one of those someday. Thank you so much for your time and for being here with me today. I appreciate you. 
Amber, thank you for the invitation. I love starting my day with you. Many blessings to you and your family. Thank you so much. You can find the resources mentioned today in the show notes or by scrolling down where you're currently listening. And don't forget to share today's conversation with a friend or on social media. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough Podcast. Tune in next time.